I had planned on starting Isaiah 53, but we're going to back it up just a little bit and uh, go to Isaiah 52 instead. Don't worry, I'm not going to teach the whole chapter. You're not going to have to listen to it for days, but we are going to back up a little bit. And the reason that I want to start in Isaiah 52 is because that's really where I believe chapter 53 starts. Or rather, that's where the prophecy within Isaiah 53 begins. Many may know this, or many may not know this, I'm not sure. But if you don't, listen. Uh, the original writings of the prophet, or prophetic books along with the rest of the Bible, they didn't have chapter divisions. Okay, the original, the original writings, they didn't have chapter divisions. The Bible just read through with no divisions except for maybe the, the book titles. You know, you might separate them by book, but they didn't have chapter divisions. Originally, they didn't even have verse divisions either. Okay? So you wouldn't say, let's go to Psalms 119, verse 13. You would have just had to read the book of Psalms. You would have had to read it as a whole. And um, However, somebody <laughs> thought it would be a great idea to put chapter divisions in the Bible. And I agree 100%. I think it was a great idea. It was a perfect idea. The person that did that was Stephen Langton. Okay, Stephen Langton, in about 1220 A.D., added the added the chapter divisions. It was, a, it was a great addition to the Bible and it helps us with the separation of our thoughts. And it makes it easier for the reader to narrow us down as study thoughts you know, within the context. The first English Bible to contain the chapter divisions was the Wycliffe Bible, or the Wycliffe Bible, however you would say that. And since then, almost all translations of the Bible have followed Langton's pattern in their chapter divisions. Now, even though the chapter divisions were established in 1220 A.D., or it's actually like 1227, I think to be exact, but somewhere around 1220, even though they were established in 1220 and were included in our English Bibles around 1382 A.D., there still were no verse divisions within the chapters. Okay, There were two men that were credited for the verse divisions in the Bible. And um, one was um, a rabbi named Nathan, he inserted the first divisions in the Old Testament around in the Old Testament around 1445 A.D. That's that's the Old Testament division, the chapter divisions, or the verse divisions. And then Robert Esteen, who was also known as Stephanus, he inserted all the verse divisions in the New Testament around 1555. So somewhere around in the 16th century, all of this kind of come to fruition, and we had chapter divisions and verse divisions compiled. So now eventually. Stephanus adopted Nathan's verse divisions in the, of the Old Testament, and then with his verse divisions of the New Testament, we get the we get what we now see in our Bibles as you read them. Okay, so since the time of the Geneva Bible, which was one of the first eight one of the eight first English translations, since the time of the Geneva Bible, the chapter and verse divisions have been included in most all of your English translations, and I'm thankful for that. So. How about that? Just a little nugget. If you didn't know it, there's something you can go home and take and study, but that's kind of where we get our chapters and verses. And um, I think that it'll it'll help you along the way. I'm thankful for the people that have gone before us in the past, aren't you? Amen. I'm super thankful for the people who have blazed the trail before us and uh, definitely thankful for the, for the verse divisions. I know I would be lost without them. It would be too hard for me to just constantly read through a book and try to pick that stuff up. But while I am thankful for their hard work, as we should all be, they are still just men, and they are fallible men. 
And just like all men, they make errors within their work for the good. Not intentionally, but for their work for the good, they do make errors. And I believe that is what has happened here in this chapter about the suffering servant. I am of the opinion that the suffering, servants cha- the ser- suffering servant chapter of Isaiah, which is known to us as Isaiah 53, should have started around the 13th verse of chapter 52. Because the whole context of verse 13 through 15 of chapter 52 support the confession that I told you was being made in chapter 53 the last time I talked. Now this might not give me the right to go back and to redo the chapter verses. Okay, I don't have the right just because I disagree with the way the chapters were divided. However, and I don't want to do that. I do not want the task, okay? However, who gave Nathan the authority to add them in the first place where they are? Nobody did. He took it upon himself, and that's okay. The question is rhetorical. Nobody gave him, him permission. So just as Nathan thought that Isaiah 53 should start where it does in our Bibles, I believe that he should have backed it up about three verses. So if he had an opinion, so do I. I think he ought to backed it up about three verses. So with that being said, let's go ahead and uh, read, starting in Isaiah chapter 52, <clears throat> verse 13, and then we're going to go all the way from... 52 and verse 13, all the way through Isaiah 53. If you got your Bibles, uh, open them up to Isaiah 52 and verse 13. If you don't have them, you ought to get one. It is really helpful when you're studying the Scriptures. You probably need one. If you don't have it, with you get, get you one. So, Anyway, let's read Isaiah chapter 52, starting in verse 13, and we'll continue from there. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were appalled at you, his appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man and his form did not resemble a human being. He will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him for they will see what had not been told them and they will understand what they had not heard. Chapter 53 Who has believed what we have heard? And who has the arm of Yahweh been revealed to? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or splendor that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like one people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by the Almighty, and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our transgression, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned our own way, and Yahweh has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shears, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man at his death. Although he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully, yet Yahweh was pleased to crush him, and he made him sick. When you make him a restitution offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days and the will of Yahweh will succeed by his hand. He will see it out of his anguish, and he will be satisfied with his knowledge. With his knowledge. 
My righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore I will give him the many as a portion, as he will receive the mighty as full. Because he submitted himself to death, and was counted among the rebels, yet he bore the sin of many, and interceded with the rebels. <clears throat> now if you remember the last time that I taught, uh, we did an overview of Isaiah 53, and I didn't include Isaiah 52 last time. One, for the sake of time, and two, just because it was an introduction to Isaiah 53. However, I wish that I would have now. I wish if I could go back, I'd do it, and I would include it Isaiah 52 or the last three verses of it. But we went over how I believe that Isaiah 53 contained a confession that the Jews would make on the day that national Israel would be saved. And I also told you that the reason it would be a confession of the Jews is because the Jews rejected the Messiah, at least as it pertains to Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. They considered this prophecy to be about them as the nation of Israel as a whole. All right? In other words, the Jews saw themselves being the suffering servant. They didn't see it being the individual, being an in individual in the person of Christ. They, they looked at this, this text in Isaiah 53 and they put themselves in the place of the suffering servant. That's what I mean by that. They didn't think that that was Yeshua that would represent this. Well, guess what? The man Nathan that gave us the chapter divisions of the Hebrew text, that was, that was none other than a Jewish rabbi. A Jewish rabbi who probably held the same view. Most Orthodox Jews still hold that view today. They believe that Israel is the suffering servant. The man that separated the chapter division in the Old Testament was a Jewish man. Okay. With that being said, it is my assumption, I do not know this, but it is my assumption that he divided the last three verses of Isaiah 52 from the whole of Isaiah 53 because if he would have included it, it would eliminate the possibility that Isaiah 53 was talking about a nation as opposed to an individual. And that is why, my friends, it would destroy the whole idea of the suffering servant being separate than the nation of Israel. See, in the last three verses of Isaiah 52, Yahweh is speaking about his servant, and he uses all personal pronouns when talking about him, such as he, his, him, things like that. Well, in Isaiah 53, the pronouns become plural, we, our. Like in verse 1, when they start their confession, it uses the pronoun we. Who has believed what we have heard? The pronouns are plural in the sense of an audience making a confession. That's where I get that from. My point is that if Nathan, the rabbi who added the chapter divisions, if he held the view that Isaiah 53 is talking about the nation of Israel or the Jews being the suffering servant, then it would support his agenda or his preconceived notion to back the chapter divisions up by three verses to separate them. It wouldn't support it. If we included the last three verses of Isaiah 52 into Isaiah 53, it would eliminate the separation from the text. As we read it a minute ago, I believe it is evident that the one spoken of at the end of Isaiah 52 is the same one that is confessed about in chapter 53. Right? Verse 13 reads like this. It says, See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. Now, in the next three verses, we're going to discuss several critical points. But the hub of these three verses is simply this. He will suffer, 
and he will be exalted. That's the hub of the verses. Okay, So before his glory will come, before he will be exalted, he must first suffer. Now the details of the suffering will come later in chapter 53, but this is somewhat of a preface to the whole suffering servant prophecy. So verse 13 begins by saying, See, which may be better translated, Behold. Your Bible may say behold. I'm not sure how, how yours reads. The Hebrew word is hanah, and it just means simply to give your full attention. Give your full attention. So, folks, give your full attention to the prophecy that you're fixing to hear. The next thing we see are the words, my servant, in Isaiah 52 and verse 13. The next thing we see are the words, my servant, which may better be understood as my slave. Now, I know that sometimes there are negative connotations that go along with the word slave, but not in ancient literature and ancient understandings of a righteous servant. All right? The Hebrew word here is ebed, the ebed of Yahweh, and it means literally the slave of Yahweh. There are several things that could be noted when we, when we read this phrase. Number one, a slave is someone who is perfectly submissive to his sole master. We see this throughout Scripture. One example is in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 19, and it reads like this. Household slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the cruel, for it brings favor. If because of conscience towards the Almighty, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. It doesn't say if you retaliate during your suffering, it brings about favor. It doesn't say if you're not humble through your suffering, it brings about favor. It says it brings favor if, because of service towards the Almighty, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. Not just suffering, unjust suffering. Would you say that the Messiah suffered unjustly for service towards the Almighty? Amen. I, I would hope that you would. Another thing that is said about slaves is that they can't serve two masters, right? We read that in the Gospels that, you know, Yeshua says that you can't serve mammon and Yahweh at the same time. You can't serve two masters. Well, Yahweh calls the servant here in Isaiah 52 and verse 13. He calls him his slave, his slave, his as in only his, my ebed, my slave, my soul-suffering servant. So this is Yahweh's servant. The slave that will do exactly what he, what he is told to do and never consider his fate. We read this a while ago. He never goes against his father's will. Uh, Elijah read it in Matthew 26 when we were reading before the service began or at the beginning of the service. And we see it in the Garden of Gethsemane. We see it there. The Messiah says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, but nevertheless not my will, but yours be done. So the slave language is common throughout the Bible, and it is common to the cultures of the world that would be hearing this from Isaiah. Okay? So don't be alarmed that our Messiah is called a slave. That's exactly what he was to his father. He was a slave, the ebed of Yahweh, the slave of Yahweh. Now continuing on, so far we have behold, pay full attention, and then we have my slave, my ebed. And then it says what he'll do. What will he do? Will he, he will do what? The next part says that he will act wisely. Your Bible may say he will prosper. The Hebrew actually means to act, to act wisely. But what that means is that by acting wisely, he will prosper. Okay, He will have success. 
the same Hebrew phrase is used in Joshua 1.8, and it's translated like this in Joshua 1.8. For then you will prosper and succeed in what you do. Okay? In the context of the book of Joshua, the person who recites the law, meditates on it day and night, will prosper and they will have success. So in the case of Isaiah 52 and verse 13, he will act wisely or prosper. He will have success. That's what it means when it says that he will act wisely. It's just a euphemism for success. So we need to pay full attention to this slave of Yahweh's who will succeed. In other words, look, people, my servant will accomplish all that I have sent him to do. He will do it perfectly, so pay attention. Everybody with me so far? We're all on the same page? All right, moving on to the last part of verse 13. It says, He will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. This is the reward for the slave's obedience. Yeshua is the slave. He's going to do everything just right. And just because of that, he will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. But what does that mean? Raised, lifted, exalted. All of those seem like forms of lofty elevation here. Raised, lifted, exalted. But these three verbs actually reference three different works done by Yahweh to his son. The first one, raised, is a prophecy about the resurrection from the grave. All right. The second one, lifted up, is about the ascension into the heavens. And the third one, greatly exalted, is about him taking on the kingship that he inherits from his father, basically like his coronation in the heavens. All right. In other words, the phrase raised, lifted, exalted is not redundant, but, it, but it's rather progressive. Okay, it, it gains speed, so to speak. It's high, raised, it's higher, lifted up, and it's highest, exalted. The line, this lines up and parallels perfectly with Philippians chapter 2. I want you to listen to Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 7 as I read it. And I want you to see if it pertains, if it parallels with what we have read so far. Philippians 2 and verse 7, starting in verse 7, it says, Instead, he, speaking of Yeshua, instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave. Taking on the likeness of men, and when he had come as a man in his, in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to the death on the cross. For this reason, Yahweh also highly exalted him and gave him the name above every name so that the name of Yeshua every knee should bow, bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue should confess that Yeshua the Messiah is Lord to the glory of Yahweh the Father doesn't that sound just like what we just read in Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 13 Yahweh will send his slave he will prosper or succeed in his mission and for that reason I will resurrect him from the grave and bring him into the heavens and crown him as king. To me, that is such a great confirmation or affirmation of prophetic validity. We've got 700 years separating Isaiah's prophecy right here and the death, burial, and resurrection of the Messiah. Somewhere around there, maybe 650, 660, something like that. Roughly 700 years between Isaiah prophesying this and this taking place in the life of Christ. And yet he gets it right. The Gospels confirm it. Paul preaches it to the church in Philippi, or at least writes it in his letter to the church in Philippi, in Philippians 2. They all get it. They all understand. It comes, to, it comes to fruition. That is incredible confirmation that the Scriptures align. Not only that they align, but that they're true. 
We don't have to worry about it. Yahweh prophesies something. He sends it through his prophets. The prophets speak it. 700 years later, it happens. That is, that's incredible to me. Now, on to verse 14. Verse 14 says, Just as many were appalled at you, his appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man, and his form did not resemble a human being. Whoa, what just happened? We have a perfect, obedient slave that's going to prosper in verse 13, but now in verse 14 we see a statement about his humiliation. Seems kind of bizarre. He's going to prosper, but he's humiliated. That seems weird. Now, we might understand this because we've read the book. We've read the beginning, and we read the end, and we know that we win and that he succeeds. And we see his trial and his crucifixion, and we know what happens. But what would, what would this have sounded like to the audience of Isaiah's time? When Isaiah prophesies this, what do you think that is going through their mind? Well, in the first part of verse 14, he's talking to the Messiah. Yahweh is talking to the Messiah through his prophet, even though the Messiah is not there yet. He's talking to the Messiah. Just as many were appalled at you. That's the second, he's in second person right there. But then he switches from second to the third person and continues with this. He says, his appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man. Now this was common in Hebrew thought and throughout prophecy from switch to switch from second to third person, first to third person, things like that. This goes on throughout prophecy. But what does it mean? Well, the first part, just as many were appalled at you, I believe describes the desecration of the body of the Messiah. All right? Many being the audience that watched him die. The many Israelites and the Jews, the Romans that saw his crucifixions were appalled at what they had seen. He was so beaten, so battered, so bruised that it was appalling to the spectators that watched his crucifixion. But then the verse switches over to the third person and it continues with this. It says, His appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man and his form did not resemble a human being. So what was so appalling? His appearance. His appearance was what was appalling to the people that were looking. His appearance had to do with his face and his form had to do with his body. His face and his body were so disfigured and distorted that he was literally, in the Hebrew, beyond men or out of the category of being human. He doesn't look like a human being. Now, I've heard that maybe the Messiah was deformed in some way or maybe he was ugly from his birth, uh, maybe deformed from his birth um, prior to his crucifixion, but I don't, I don't think that was the case. I don't believe that, that the Messiah was a Romeo you know, I don't think he was just a, a you know, good-looking man, so to speak. I don't think that was the case. Um, according to Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 2, it says that he had no form or splendor that we should look at him. Okay? So I don't think he was necessarily precious to look at. However, um, I definitely don't think that he was disfigured or ugly necessarily from birth. I don't think that was the case. I think that the adjectives applied here in verse 14, being disfigured, has to do with the torment and the beatings that he took during his crucifixion. It was bad, folks. It was bad. Psalms 22 may lend a little help in understanding his disfigurement. Psalm 22 and verses 14 and 15, it says this. It says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are disjointed. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength is dried up like baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. In other words, he was a punching bag. We know that the Messiah asked for water, and they give him vinegar. 
right? His mouth was dry. Psalms 22 is speaking about that a long time before it ever happens. His bones were disjointed. His strength was dried up. Guys, he was spit on and he was beat. He bled throughout the whole persecution. They stripped him naked. They divided his clothes up. They cast lots for his garments. We all know what happened to him. It was horrific. It was horrific the way that they tortured him. That's why Isaiah tells us he didn't look like a man. He didn't resemble a human being. He was beat beyond recognition. And because of this, verse 15 comes into play. Back in Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 15, it says, So he will sprinkle many nations. Stop right there for a second. Does anybody in here have a Bible that says he will startle many nations? Nobody, nobody says that. All right. Well, the NET Bible records it this way. It says, the, it says that he will startle many nations. I think that it should read that way. So he will startle many nations, not sprinkle many nations. The Hebrew word here is the word nazah or nazah. I don't speak Hebrew, but that's, that's how, you, how you write it, nazah, which means to spurt in a literal sense. But it can mean metaphorically to leap up by excessive emotion. It could mean to startle. So why would the translators choose the verb sprinkle here rather than startle? Well, traditionally, most translators use sprinkle here, I think, because they hold to the idea that during his execution and exaltation, he would go from sacrifice to priest. And therefore, he would sprinkle nations in the sense of purification. I think that's why they hold that view. In other words, by his death and resurrection, he will cleanse many nations. And that's not a bad translation or not even really a bad understanding because I believe that he has cleansed us all personally. All right? But that doesn't necessarily fit the context in Isaiah number one. And I'm not sure that nations can be cleansed or purified, number two. I believe a nation, people within a nation can be cleansed and purified. We as individuals of a nation can be cleansed and purified. But the nation as a whole, corporately, I don't think that there's a purification for that necessarily. So it really doesn't fit the context. If we read on in verse 15, we will see that the astonishment belongs to the kings. Okay, It says, Kings will shut their mouths because of him, for they will see what had not been told them, and they will understand what they had not heard. So kings will shut their mouths because of him. Well, are they shutting their mouths because they are sprinkled? Or are they shutting their mouths because they are startled? That would be the question. I would have to say that they are shutting their mouths because they are startled by his appearance. In some sense, the startling effect he produces in his humiliation will be the same startling effect that he produces in his exaltation. In other words, his humiliation and exaltation did not sprinkle or cleanse many nations, but rather it startled many nations. It just surprised them. It just surprised them. This is not what they were expecting. This mangled human being that didn't even resemble a man, it startled them. I hope you guys are staying with me. I told you that when I gave an overview of this chapter the last time I talked that we're going to try to dissect these verses, and so that's what you're getting today. And if you want the watered-down version, you can go back and listen to my last sermon, I guess. (laughs) I'm just kidding. How many people in here like the deep study of the Scriptures? All right. Got about three or four of us in here. Let's continue on to verse 15. It says, Kings will shut their mouths because of him. 
for they will see what had not been told them, and they will understand what they had not heard. Now when it says kings will shut their mouths, I can't help but to wonder, what kings are we talking about? See, kings are just rulers, and the word can be applied to all kinds of rulers, not just kings of countries and provinces. Okay, It's just a man in a high position. You could apply the word king to him. So what kings are we talking about? Well, let's keep with the context, and we'll see if we understand. The start of verse 15 says he will startle many nations, right? It doesn't say he will startle one nation, being Israel. It says many nations. So that alone should tell us that Israel's not in view in this verse. But many nations besides Israel, they are in view. Not only that, but it also says that these kings of the many nations will see what had not been told them. Now, if we have any Bible knowledge at all, we know that all Bible prophecy was written by an Israelite to Israelites. Okay, And that's, that's common throughout all of Scripture. It's wrote by Israelites to Israelites. Well, this verse says that they will see what they had not been told them. What will they see? They'll see Christ's exaltation. They'll see his death, his humiliation. They'll see his exaltation. Okay, may see him coming in the future. This is what has not been told these kings. But we know that in the beginning of Isaiah 53, that the Jews had been told it before they make the confession because they say this, who has believed what we have heard? Israel had heard this. The Jews had heard this. They did hear the message. They just didn't receive it. And the kings of many nations have never even heard it. Hence the reason it will startle the kings of many nations. His coming will shock the kings of the earth. At some point in time, they will see and understand what they've never even heard. I take the stance that this is the fulfillment of the prophecy in Psalms chapter 2. I want you to take a look at Psalms 2 real quick. I'm going to read it. It won't take too long. And I want you to see if this uh, sounds like what we're looking at. Psalms chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says, Why do the nations rebel and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and their rulers conspire together against Yahweh and his anointed one. Let us tear off their chains and free ourselves from their restraints. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them with his wrath. I have consecrated my king on Mount Zion, on Zion my holy mountain. I will declare Yahweh's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will shatter them like pottery. So now kings be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with reverence all and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the sun, or he will be angry, and you will perish in your rebellion. For his anger may ignite at any moment. All those who take refuge in him are happy. It seems to me that there is coming a day when all the kings of the earth will witness the exaltation of Christ in his splendor and understand the superiority that he has over the whole earth. And when that happens, their mouths will be shut and they will understand Yahweh and all his glory. They will recognize the Son for who he is and they will receive instruction as Psalms chapter 2 and verse 10 says. 
As for the nation of Israel, I believe that they have already heard it, but they have rejected the truth about his humiliation and his exaltation. Or at least they didn't believe that this was accomplished in the person of Yeshua from Nazareth. They were startled when they heard of, his, of this lowly man who claimed to be the Messiah. They were startled when he was disfigured, when he was beaten, and when he was crucified. They were startled when he was resurrected and walked among them. And they were probably startled one day at his second coming. Now the next time that I teach, we'll start off with Isaiah chapter, the first verse of Isaiah chapter 53. And we'll start to unfold the confession that the Jews will make on the day that they recognize the Son of Yahweh, that he was the suffering servant that they rejected. They will understand Isaiah 52, verses 13 through 15 in its fullness, and they will also understand that Isaiah 53 is talking specifically about them as a nation in their confession. So we've covered the preface for the suffering servant and his rejection in these verses at the end of chapter 52 today. But we will see more of this in detail for his rejection, about his rejection the next time that I teach. And I'm looking forward to teaching next time. I hope that you are too. But before I close, I guess the question that needs to be asked of you today is where do you stand? Where do you stand? Do you recognize that Yahweh has a son? Can you see that? Yahweh has an only begotten son. Monogenes. A specially created son. He has a son. This is the one that's going to be high. Higher. And highly exalted. He's going to be given a kingship. He's going to sit at the right hand of Yahweh. This is the son of Yahweh. It's all through this prophecy. You can't get away from it. It's going to run you down. Do you realize that Yahweh has a son? Do you believe that he has raised him from the dead? And that he's lifted him up into immortality? Exalted him above the heavens and the earth? If you believe that, then you've been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That is the gospel message. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13. And if you believe that, then wouldn't it make sense to be obedient to his commands? He's the great and coming king. It's paramount that we walk in his ways, that we acknowledge him in everything that we do and serve him as Lord and Master. It's paramount. Make sure that you know where you stand. Make sure. Until next time, everybody take the time. If you, if you want to study this prophecy and you want to get what there is in it out of it, take the time. Go read Isaiah 53 over and over and over again. Just read it, read it, read it. Let it resonate in your mind. And then we'll discuss it piece by piece as we go along. Until then, may Yahweh go with you and give you peace.